And you know, when you read through the Bible, when you read documents in the New Testament, you could very easily come away with the sense, the feeling that Christians are a very special group of people. If you're a believer, you're, you're, you're special. In fact, I think some of the authors actually go out of their way to try to show Christians you are special. You are unique. You are privileged. I want to take you to a passage of Scripture before we get into our subject tonight. I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We, uh, we live in a culture that understands how important self-worth is to people. And yet we are a culture of people that are just trying to find self-worth. We keep telling ourselves we deserve self-respect and all those things. And yet we are a culture that lacks this, you know, this, this hunger for you know, who am I, something special about me. And as Christians, we read the Bible and we, we see the biblical author saying, like, you are special. You are unique. And Ephesians 1, in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He is saying, he starts the letter off, you are blessed preeminently blessed. You are blessed to the hilt. You are blessed with the highest of blessings, with all the blessings that could possibly be. You've been blessed. You're special. And then he describes, I'm going to just focus on three of them. Verse 4, even or just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You are blessed because God chose you. You're blessed. You're you're special. You are unique because you have been chosen by God. That's not just a pastor. That's not just missionaries. If you are in Christ, you have been chosen by God. Isaiah, I know your name. I've called you by name. You're mine. You're special. I mean, that sentence is... So simple in, in Greek, it's a, I mean, that little phrase, he chose us. He chose, it's in the middle, which I'm not going to get into the grammar, but you could translate it, he chose for himself us. It's so clear in Scripture, it's not... You're blessed because you chose God, and boy, you get all these blessings because you chose God. No, you're blessed because God chose you. You're special. Then he goes on, verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons. You are special because your life has been predetermined, prearranged to adoption. When you come to Christ, you don't come by accident. You come to Christ because you heard someone preaching the gospel to you, because you had certain people in your life that are telling you the truth, and you respond to that and you accept it. But then you find out after you've accepted it, this has been predetermined before you even came to Christ. You're special. What has happened in your life is not by accident. 
Jordan, and he didn't tell, but ending up at the anchor house, he didn't want to go to the anchor house. That wasn't his first choice. And he kept trying to get into another place, and unexplainably, they kept rejecting him. And he ends up accidentally at the anchor house. And God met him there. Predetermined, predestined for adoption. You're special. This is for Christians. This is for believers. I think Paul said, you guys need to understand, this is unique. Then he says, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You are special because you're redeemed. You have the forgiveness of sins. We're blessed. We're unique because we've been redeemed. Our sins have been forgiven. Now, we need to just think about this for a minute, the weight of what I am saying. These realities, chosen, predestined, redeemed, are unique realities for the believers that are not true about everyone else in the world. That's what it means when I say we're special. You are chosen, not everyone is chosen. You are predestined, not everyone is predestined. You are redeemed, not everyone is redeemed. You are special. This is weighty stuff. Preeminently blessed. Now, what is foundational for our study tonight? We're going to, we're going to focus on redemption. In him we have redemption. But the foundation of what I want to say is, There's something foundational that we have to understand before we get to that redemption part. And it's the understanding that one of the most profound things that the Bible says about us is that we are uniquely and supremely loved by God. We are uniquely loved by God. And it is because we are uniquely loved by God that we are chosen predestined, and redeemed because he loves us. I don't think a lot of Christians think about the weight of this. You are uniquely loved of God. You are loved of God in a way that he does not love everyone else. That's what I'm saying. That's what the Bible says. This was true of the Old Testament. I want us to see quickly this fact in the Old Testament. Then we're going to look at the pages of the New Testament quickly before we look at redemption. I'm going to just read these to you, but you can see this unique, special love in the Old Testament that God had for Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. I'm going to read it for you. You are a people holy to the Lord. I know when we think of being holy to the Lord, we think of, oh, you mean we're sinless or you know, a monk or a saint or some, you know, super spiritual being. Holy to the Lord simply means set apart, different, unique. You are, you are set apart by God. You are special. You could use the word special when it comes to holy. It might be more helpful in the context because, of course, holy does mean in places to be without sin, but it also means to be different, set apart. And in this context, it, he's not saying you are holy and that you are without any sin. No, you are a unique, special people to the Lord, okay? For you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. 
out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So here, here's, I said, you're special. God is saying to Israel, you are special. I have chosen you out of all the other nations. You are a special people to me. Verse 7, it's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you. That's staggering. The Lord loves you. That's why he chose you. He loves you uniquely, special. You're his people. Listen to Isaiah 43. This is very much a part of the psyche of Israel. This is what the Lord says to them, and I'm going to read Isaiah 43, verses 3 and 4. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. I mean, that verse is just staggering. God says, I give other people, I I give them up for you. I, I exchange their lives for your life. He put to death the firstborn of Egypt for the sake of his people, Israel. God is saying, I love you uniquely, especially. You are my people, Israel. Now, when we go to the pages of the New Testament, the same kind of language is applied to us as Christians. Those of you that were with us in Romans, you might remember Romans 1.7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. To all those in Kansas City who are loved by God. That's a, I mean, just think about what that means. That there are many, many people in Rome, but there are some in Rome who are uniquely Loved by God. There are many people in Kansas City, but there are some people in Kansas City uniquely loved by God as Christians. Then there is Ephesians 5.25, a very familiar passage of Scripture. It talks about the unique love that God has for his people in the New Testament. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church. The body of believers. Christ loves the church. And he gave himself up for the church. Marriage is patterned after the relationship to Christ and the church. In fact, Paul says that's, this mystery is great, but marriage was created to demonstrate the relationship between Christ and the church. Husbands are to love their wives uniquely and supremely as Christ loved the church. Now, we all know what it's supposed to be in marriage. A man is to love his wife and be faithful to her above all others. That means, you know, I, I've said this many times, and, you know, my wife doesn't particularly like it, but I, it would not be helpful to my wife if I said to her, Honey, I love you like I love all women. 
Thank you. That's now Pam got that. That doesn't go very well at all, does it? I love you just like I love all women. And yet that's how many people think their relationship with God. God loves me like he loves everybody. He loves everybody. And they have not come to grips with what the Bible says. You are unique. God does not love you like he loves everyone else. He loves you specially, uniquely, uh, uh, supremely. Once you understand that, if you believe that as a believer you are unique in God's sight, then everything else that I'm saying to you, you're like, oh, yeah, that, that's right. Because the Bible goes out of its way. The New Testament goes out of its way to tell Christians. I could go to Colossians. I could just go to so many different passages. It's like, you need to know who you are. You are special in, in Christ. You, you need to know who you are. At the heart of the unique love that God has for us is redemption. Christ loved the church and he what? Gave himself for the church. He died for the church. At the heart of the love that he has for us is redemption. His death for us. This is the doctrine of grace that we're going to look at this evening. The the redemption, the love and grace of God in our redemption. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. We're examining that grace, the grace that you were saved by. The grace of God in redeeming us. In our acrostic, we have the acronym TULIP. We've looked at total depravity. We've looked at unconditional election. We're looking this evening at limited atonement. Limited atonement. Now, I will be the first to confess that this acronym is a historical acronym. It's not necessarily the best acronym. For example, I wouldn't use total depravity if I were going to name the doctrine because total depravity takes us down a road that's not necessarily true about total depravity. The same goes for limited atonement. I wouldn't use limited atonement. Now, I'm not going to recreate the wheel, but it creates in people's mind, it's like, whoa, wait a second, limited atonement, I don't understand that. There are better words that we could use, Um, particular redemption is my favorite. Of course, then it doesn't work in the acronym, right? So it doesn't fit, so we've got to make it fit. We've got to work, limited redemption would be more appropriate, more biblically nuanced, or intentional redemption, or accomplished redemption. That's what we're saying. When we say limited atonement, it can be very confusing and it starts people off on the wrong foot. There are a lot of people who would call themselves four-point Calvinists and not five points, and oftentimes it's because of the L. I don't believe in limited atonement. Sometimes it's just because it's either been taught wrong to them or they don't really know what limited atonement means. And I hope that you will understand. I hope it will be clear. We're going to use tonight and tomorrow, uh, next Wednesday night, talking about limited atonement because it is so important. God, as we saw last week, looks at humanity and they're all lost. There's none that seek him. No, not one. There's none that do good. And in that sea of humanity, God says, I'm going to save some anyway. He chooses some. He doesn't choose everyone. He chooses some. The others are not forced. They are left alone. They are left to do what they want to do. 
That's the worst thing that can happen to a human being when God lets you do exactly what you want to do because what you will want to do will lead you into ruin and condemnation and death. And we are those who God says, I'm not going to let you go that way. And he pursues us, he calls us. But to be chosen of God is incredible, but election doesn't save us. Election marks us out to be saved, but we're not saved by election. We still are sinners, we're lost. Redemption is God saving his people. So when we talk about limited atonement, I want to define it for you. And I'm going to be just very simple with it. Limited atonement means simply that on the cross, I'm talking about a historical moment. I'm talking about when Jesus Christ was on the cross. Go back 2,000 years. On the cross, Jesus Christ actually paid for all the sins of all the elect. That's what we mean by limited atonement. This is why I prefer to say accomplished redemption or particular redemption. I'll explain that more next week. On the cross, Jesus Christ paid, paid, paid for all the sins of the elect. To understand atonement, redemption, you have to understand the Old Testament. You just have to understand the Old Testament. A lot of people don't understand redemption because they just kind of ignore the Old Testament. They don't understand. But the Old Testament, which makes up, you know, two-thirds of our Bible, is all foundational and prerequisite for understanding the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament writers presume that you're going to know the Old Testament. And they will make references without even explaining them, assuming you know exactly what it means because you would have known the Old Testament. And the reason they would do that is because in the early church, when the apostles were writing, the only Bible the church had was the Old Testament. And so they assumed you knew the Old Testament. Unfortunately, today, we can't assume people know the Old Testament because we, we tend to just skip to the New Testament. Well, all that stuff. But if you don't understand the Old Testament, you're not going to get right the New Testament. And so to understand redemption, you'd have to go back to the Old Testament because God establishes an understanding of what redemption means and what it requires in the, in the law in the Old Testament. And everything in the Old Testament is called a shadow. Of Christ. If you think about it for a second, a shadow. <clears throat> I don't see any light here. If I had a, well, there's a shadow back here. The Old Testament is a shadow. That means it's a reflection of something greater, a reality, and that reality is Christ. So when you read the Old Testament, you are looking at Christ's shadow. The New Testament is here, so now we have the real thing, but that was a shadow. Let me give you an example of just a New Testament writer assuming you know the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Okay? If you did not know the Old Testament, you would not know Passover lamb. What's the Passover lamb? He is assuming that everyone reading it knows, the, oh, the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb that was slain in Egypt and its blood was put over the doorpost of the, of the home. Christ is our Passover lamb. So when that happens back in the Old Testament and the blood is shed and the blood put on the doorpost, that was a shadow of Christ. Christ is our Passover. Okay? 
what I want us to do as we look at this subject is we're going to look at redemption in the Old Testament, what, it, what happened in the Old Testament, and then we're going to look at it in the New Testament. So that's the two things we're going to do tonight, and I hope it will help us set the groundwork for understanding limited atonement or particular redemption. I'm going to look at two places in the Old Testament that give us really the framework of redemption that serves for the New Testament. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28. And I I hope you do have your Bibles, and I hope that you will look at this and read it. There's just something about you actually reading in Scripture, not just listening to me say it, but like, oh, that's really what the Bible says, okay? In Exodus 28, God is setting up the sacrificial system. He's setting up the tabernacle. He's setting up the priests and the high priests, the people that are going to sacrifice the animals to make atonement for the sin. And in Exodus chapter 28, you have the priestly garments, what the high priest is going to wear when he sacrifices the animals for Israel. And I'm going to draw your attention. There's two things in Exodus 28 the high priest is going to wear. In verse 6... They're going to wear an ephod. Think of shoulder pads made of stone. Okay. They shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, of fine twine, linen, skillfully worked. Verse 7. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together. Verse 9. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone. Verse 12, And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod, as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron, the first high priest, shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. This is incredible imagery. Aaron is going to go into the Holy of Holies and bring blood to make atonement for Israel. And when he does it, he's going to be wearing an ephod, and it's going to be two stones, and on his shoulders, he's going to be symbolically bearing the weight of the children of Israel on his shoulders. The six tribes and six tribes to go in and make atonement for them, bearing their names on his shoulder. Then verse 15, there's another garment. It's the breastplate or the breastpiece of judgment. And this is very interesting. Verse 21, the breastplate shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with his name for the 12 tribes. So the breastplate, you will have 12 stones, and on each stone would be the name of one of the tribes of Israel. Verse 29, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. The end of verse 30, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. 
the high priest is going to go into the presence of God. He's going to be bringing his people, the names of his people, right on his heart and on his shoulders. He's going to be bringing their sins in with him, and he's going to make atonement for them in the presence of God for Israel. So this was a very specific atonement, that the high priest was bearing the names of the children of Israel on his heart and on his shoulders to go into the presence of God and make atonement for sin. Very specific atonement that is made in the Old Testament. And this would happen year after year after year, regularly. Now, turn to Leviticus 16, and we get an even greater insight of what happens in the redemption of Israel in the Old Testament. Leviticus 16 describes the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. They still practice it today. They still celebrate in Israel today, Yom Kippur, although they don't do sacrifices anymore because they don't have a temple any longer. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The high priest goes in once a year to make sacrifice for the sin, to redeem Israel for their sins, to make atonement. And it's a very specific atonement. Remember, we already know what the high priest is wearing. He's wearing the names of the children of Israel on his shoulders. He has their names on his heart as he goes in to make atonement. Look at verse 11. The first thing that the high priest had to do, Aaron, he had to present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. The first thing he has to do is atone for his own sins before he goes and atones for anybody else's sins. So he has to, first of all, make a sacrifice and atone for his own sins. So he does that. Verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. Which people? The people of Israel, the children of Israel. There are a lot of people in the ancient world, Philistines, Amorites, Hittites. But this is for the people of Israel. This is a very specific atonement. The high priest is bearing their names, and now he's going to kill the goat for the sin offered for the people. And he's going to bring the, the, the blood inside the veil and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, making atonement for their sins. Okay? Blood was shed to propitiate the wrath of God. Okay? It's, there's payment being made for this sin. Then you'll notice verse 20. After this happens, they kill the goat. The high priest goes in and he he brings the blood and applies it for the sins of Israel in the mercy seat. Then they take another goat. This is called, we call him the scapegoat, the live goat. Look what happens to him. Verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness, the scapegoat. Their sins were transferred on the head of that goat, and then they drive the goat out. The goat takes their sins away. But you see this transference. He lays his hands on the goat, and all the sins of Israel, all their iniquities and all their transgressions are placed on the goat, and the goat is taken away. It's like one goat isn't enough to really signify the removal of their sins. The blood was shed for Israel. Now you have the scapegoat. Your sins are taken away from you, okay? Very specific atonement. 
Very intentional atonement made and applied for the sons of Israel. Now there's one other place I'm going to want you to look at, and that's Isaiah 53. And this is important because this is setting up for the atonement, that this atonement in the Old Testament is pointing to a far greater atonement. This atonement is pointing to a greater lamb, the Lamb of God, who will take away our sin. And so Isaiah 53 will describe, give Israel this foreshadow, this this sacrificial system. This is a shadow of something far greater. And Isaiah 53 is the far greater. And you're going to see this intentional substitutionary atonement. Okay, you probably know Isaiah 53. You, You should know it very well. It's a precious piece of scripture and it is describing Jesus Christ verse 5 he the Lord's anointed one was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace with his wounds we are healed All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. He did not open his mouth. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, when he is afflicted, when he is pierced, when he is crushed, out of the anguish of his soul, he, the Lord, shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities, like the scapegoat bore Israel's iniquities. The end of verse 12. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53 is setting the groundwork for the coming Messiah who will be crushed for our iniquities. He will be pierced for us. He will bear our iniquities. I want to turn now to the pages of the New Testament quickly and look at atonement in the New Testament. Atonement in the New Testament doesn't come out of thin air. It comes out of the Old Testament. The Old Testament established the framework. When you come to the New Testament... You see the presentation of Jesus Christ who comes to fulfill the Old Testament. He is the Lamb of God. I'm going to read to you. I've got five or six verses here that I'm going to bring to your attention as we look at atonement in the New Testament. And we will see that it is specific. It is particular, just like it was in the Old Testament. Matthew 121, the birth of Jesus Christ. She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, Joshua, Yahweh saves, for he shall save his people from their sins. You call him Jesus because he's going to save his people. You're not going to, it does not say that Jesus is going to come and he's going to try to save people. Or he's going to make salvation possible for people. He is going to save his people. This is why I like atonement accomplished 
redemption accomplished when we talk about limited atonement. He will save his people. Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Does not say all. What is a ransom? We, we know of ransom kind of in the criminal world. Somebody gets kidnapped and they demand a ransom. That means you have to pay a price in order for them to get released. It, there was probably that in the ancient world, but it was more in the market of slavery. There was a slave price and there was a ransom price to gain your freedom. And it says that he came as the ransom price, the price of deliverance for many. Not for everyone. For many. Let's turn to John 10. We'll see the same specific, particular redemption. John 10. Jesus is the Good shepherd. All these metaphors in the Bible, it's amazing. He can't, there's not just one. He is the Lamb of God, but he's also the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. Uh, he is the sacrifice. He's the high priest. I mean, everything is fulfilled in Christ. John 10. Jesus says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is very, there are sheep and there are goats. And Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep, my sheep, my people. Not the goats, but the sheep. Verse 14 and 15, see how specific this is. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father... I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Jesus knows you intimately. He knows you. He knows you as well as he knows the Father. That's what he, Jesus says, I, I know my own. I know who my sheep are, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Folks, this is Jesus talking, okay? This isn't John Calvin. This isn't some systematic theologian. This is Jesus saying, I know my sheep. I know them as well as I know the Father. And I die for my sheep. I will lay down my life for the sheep. Now, I want to turn to the book of Hebrews. If there is a book in the Bible that deals with the atonement, more comprehensively than Hebrews. I don't know what it is. If it weren't for the book of Hebrews, I might be a Catholic. Maybe. But it is impossible to be a Catholic and believe the book of Hebrews. Because it is so strong on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty. It's over, done, no more. 
But the book of Hebrews is also unique because it takes, it helps us bridge the Old Testament to the New Testament. It helps us to understand the shadow and what it points to. So we go back to Exodus, and remember we had Aaron, the high priest, and we had his garments. The book of Hebrews comes along and says all of that pointing to Jesus as our high priest. So it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore, to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. He had to become a man so that he could be the high priest for men to be in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what the high priest did. Remember, he would go in to the Holy of Holies, bearing the sins of his people on his chest and on his shoulders and make propitiation. And Jesus is Aaron. He is the high priest. He is our high priest. Aaron is pointing to what Jesus Christ is, okay? Verse 1 of chapter 3, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. You have a high priest. Just like Israel had somebody to go before God on their account, Aaron, we have someone to go into the presence of God for us. It's not me. It's not a pope. It's not a man. It's Jesus Christ himself. He's our high priest. He goes in. He, there's one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. That's why you don't need to go to a priest to confess your sins. You go straight to God through Jesus Christ because he's our high priest. Now, I want you to turn to chapter 9 because you will see the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, what it was pointing to in the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Okay, so just quickly, Aaron went into an earthly tabernacle. Jesus didn't go into an earthly tabernacle. He goes into heaven itself, into the holy place itself. The one on earth, that's just, a, that's just a picture of the one. Jesus doesn't go into the picture. But he goes into the presence of God himself. Verse 12, he entered once for all. The high priest had to go all the time, year after year. But he does it one time. Not by means of the blood of goats. He's not bringing a goat's blood in this time on calves, but he brings his own blood. I don't know if I can picture that, what that moment was like. Presumably sometime after the ascension, perhaps in the between time of the death and resurrection, Jesus goes into the presence of God himself with his blood. And it says he secures an eternal redemption, a completed, eternal, never-to-be-repeated redemption. It's a final, complete, eternal redemption. Drop down to verse 24. Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but in heaven itself, now to appear 
in the presence of God on our behalf. The writer of Hebrews is assuming you understand the Old Testament day of atonement. When the high priest goes into the presence of God, bearing on his shoulders the names of his people and on his chest the names of his people and makes atonement for them because he is reenacting that moment and says there was a day when Christ went into the presence of God on behalf of us. I mean, the implication is your name as a believer was written on the stone on his heart. Your name is on his shoulders. He is uh, there for you, your behalf. That's particular redemption. That's limited. That this is actually done. That some 2,000 years ago, Christ entered into the presence of God with his blood. And he says, these people, their sins are paid for. Here's the blood. My blood that has been shed for them. He appeared in the presence of God. Uh, You should underline it if you haven't. On our behalf. The ephod and the breastplate. Our names. Verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. He's bearing the sins of many. Not everyone. He's bearing our sins. I just want to bring out one other thing because we maybe wouldn't catch this. I'm not going to turn there. But John 17, anybody know what it's called? A high priestly prayer. That's interesting. Why is it called a high priestly prayer? Well, Jesus is our high priest. And what is he about ready to do? He's about ready to make atonement for sins, Right? And in John 17, he prays. It's a high priestly prayer. And you read it for yourself, and you see who he's praying for. You see who's on his heart. He says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for my own, those that you have given to me. In John 17, the people on Christ's heart are his sheep, his people. Those who believe in his name. That's who he's about ready to make atonement for. It's, it's fascinating when you see that connection. We're going to look at the Lord's Supper. I want you to turn to Matthew 26, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Because when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating accomplished redemption. Matthew 26. This is what? The night of Passover. He institutes the Lord's Supper on the night of Passover. Verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. After blessing, he broke. He gave to the disciples. He said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Passover blood was applied to many doorposts, not every doorpost. The blood of the covenant is poured out, not for everyone, but for many, many people. Not everyone, many. This 
This redemption is accomplished. When we partake of this, we are declaring our participation in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that when he died on the cross, he died for my sins. He died for my sins. This is blood spilled for me on my behalf. Redemption accomplished. I've, someone said this years ago. This is not original with me, but I like to say it so much that it, it's as if I, it was original with me, but it's, it's not. But someone says, when were you saved? I was saved 2,000 years ago. I was saved 2,000 years ago and Jesus Christ paid for my sins. That's what it means to be atonement applied or accomplished. It was done. Jesus didn't hope to save some people. He's not hoping that people will get saved. He came to save his people. He's going to save it. He goes into the presence of God and he goes, here they are. They're paid for. They're bought and paid for. That's why when you come to Christ, you know, you hear the gospel, you say, this is incredible. If I believe, I will be forgiven of all my sins. And that is absolutely true. You will be forgiven of all your sins. And you believe, and then you study the scriptures and you find out, yes, this was all preordained. Your sins were bought and paid for 2,000 years ago by the Lord Jesus Christ. What? This is way beyond what we could ever dream or imagine. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And we're going to talk next week about what does this mean for other people? What does this mean for the world? But tonight I'm going to focus on what it means for us. 2,000 years ago, you were forgiven. All of your sins were paid for. Every one of them. Jesus brought you into the presence. He knows you by name. I know this one. I died for this one. Here's my blood for him. You're forgiven. I don't care what you've done. Murder, abortion, adultery. It doesn't, I mean, there is no, oh, that's a little too much. It's paid for. It's done. You're forgiven. And we celebrate this we are saying, this is the blood on the doorposts of my home. This is the blood of Jesus Christ shed for my sins.